HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T Ranch. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we talk to Lisa Colton, the founder and president of Durham Online and Durham Consulting. Her work centers on helping nonprofits and social causes develop opportunities for community building, fundraising, and education. Most recently, Lisa helped organize the Great Big Jewish Food Fest, a 10-day virtual food festival created during the pandemic that connected home cooks across America in celebration of Jewish cuisine. We talk about the new reality for events and how the rules have changed in creating meaningful engagement. For today's musical guest, we hand the reins over to our pal and engineer, Jeet Paul. He meets up with Kyle Horner, guitarist for the band Three Question Marks. The New Jersey-based blues jam band is influenced by such legendary musicians as Led Zeppelin, Marvin Gaye, and Quincy Jones. Expect Three Question Marks' debut album to drop this fall and listen to live songs from the upcoming album. And as a reminder, our very first book, Snacky Tunes, Music is the Main Ingredient, Chefs and Their Music, is out this summer and fall and fade in, is now available for pre-order. It features 77 of the world's top chefs who share personal stories of how music has been an important, integral force in their lives. The chefs also give us personal recipes and curated playlists. It's an anthology of memories, meals, and mixtapes. Snacky Tunes hits shelves in North America October 14th and globally September 3rd. Head to Snacky Tunes to order your copy, over there, you'll find a discount from Faden, just for you fans. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacking Tunes on HRN. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Baby, later, Dad. 
come and go, baby. Why can't you stay? Say you never leave me, darling, and you go away. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. In our ongoing coverage of how the restaurant and hospitality industry has been affected by the coronavirus, we are joined by Lisa Colton. Lisa, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. You are the founder and president of Darum Online and Darum Consulting. Uh, For our guests uh, and listeners, uh, can you explain a little bit about what that company is? Sure. Um, I noticed in my 20s that there was a lack of translation, I would say, between organizational leaders and strategists who were older than I was uh, and the younger people in my cohort at that time, and now millennials as well, and the way that they organize their lives, uh, priorities that they have, um, and the ways that they use technology. Um, And so I saw a need to fill that gap. And what that gap has looked like over the last 20 years is really different. Um, In 2000, when I started, that was building websites that were up to date and functional and good email campaigns. Uh, Then social media happened. Uh, And now I would say a lot of my work focuses on creating um, flatter and more accessible uh, kinds of business models. So we see that happening um, across uh, our whole economy from the movement of, say, Encyclopedia Britannica to Wikipedia, or from yellow cabs to Uber or anything else. Um, The same function in our society, but a totally different way of going about it. Uh, And so I help mostly nonprofits and social causes also understand that shift and align their work. And when you say flatter, um, for those of the uninitiated, could you go a little bit deeper into what that means? Oh, that's the $64 million question, really. I would say, as succinctly as I can, um, non-flat, more kind of program and product-oriented design really is about a group of experts creating something and then trying to get everybody to come buy their product. Um, Whereas a flatter approach, uh, the business or leaders design the mechanisms to help individuals provide those services and opportunities to one another. So in the Mm. Britannica model, um, experts get the content, edit it, publish it, produce it, sell it, and you get it in homes and libraries, although it was really expensive and really heavy and, by the way, out of date the moment that you bought it. Um, Whereas Wikipedia, the foundation that runs that, creates the infrastructure and the policies and the mechanisms 
to allow people to create and edit content, knowing that the wisdom of the crowd, amazingly, like the data is that it's not quite as accurate as Britannica might have been, but it's way more up to date and much more vast. Um, and they do it based on donations and they get, I don't know, something like a hundred million dollars of donations around the world every year to support that platform. What were some of the challenges that you have faced over the last 20 years and, and have they, what stayed the same and what's changed about convincing people to have a much stronger digital presence, um, or being available in the digital age? It's a great question. It is not a question of technology, actually, even though a lot of people wish it was because that would be easier to solve. Um, I would say largely it's a question of culture. Um, the way that we have measured our success uh, by sales or membership or the number of tushes in seats at programs um, is really, really deeply ingrained. Um, it's ingrained in the philosophy and the skills of leaders in the organizational structures and the job descriptions of everyone that we employ. Uh, and it's ingrained in the business models. Um, and so shifting to a flatter approach isn't just like a new strategy and a light switch you can flick on and, and make it happen. It really involves asking some very deep questions and, and questioning a lot of assumptions uh, and then really intentionally making that change. Um, and the problem that I find most often as leaders confront that, even if like on a philosophical and intellectual basis, they are 100% on board, there's a lot of risk involved because the minute that you change the old model even if you completely agree that it wasn't optimized and wasn't working really well, the minute that you change it, you, it, it throws a thousand questions up in the air and lots of uncertainty. And so especially in the nonprofit world where you have boards of directors who are by design and, and evenly, even legally accountable for the sustainability and the financial health of that organization – um, risk is really scary. Uh, and so it's really a question of, of how do you create a culture in your leadership where you can hold risk? Because we're at a moment in time where everything is changing, fueled and supported by technology, but not only because of technology. Um, we have to get much better at assessing risk and figuring out where we are going to take risks. Um, because without doing so, the organization and its approach just ages and, and it's eventually going to be irrelevant anyway. So I try and help people see opportunity to take positive, smart risks earlier, um, sometimes small ones to like test and get comfortable with it before you take big ones. Um, but to take those risks from a position of strength and abundance and enthusiasm and potential rather than to be faced with taking those risks when you're already feeling stressed and, you know, are, are in a scarcity mindset. Um, it's really different to take risks then. You know, outside of working with nonprofits, you also have a strong focus in the Jewish community and have made some pretty incredible platforms and events, um, specifically the Urgency of Now, the Seattle Jewish Climate Festival, and the Seder 2020 
Um, how did your events dovetail with getting um, different companies to recognize like their needs um, of the clients and how to position themselves in modern times? It's a great question. I've, I've been a consultant for 20 years and I have a pretty particular philosophy uh, and approach that I try and bring to them. And it, it really um, relies on my clients being very honest about the different stakeholders in their world. Um, and I use Venn diagrams a lot. Like, how do you understand those different stakeholders and their needs and the moment in time? And if you're really honest about those things and you map them, where do they overlap? And if you can really honestly find that overlap, that's what you design for. Whether it's the content and messaging in your social media or the next program or platform that you design. So I would say in the last year or year and a half, I have had the opportunity to put that approach and philosophy uh, into practice more directly myself. And the first time I did it, it was um, it was on the one hand very obvious to me, and on the other hand, a real moment of reckoning of, okay, I've been talking about this philosophy and approach in theory for years. Now, what does it look like to do it myself? Um, and that was the urgency of now uh, Seattle's Jewish Climate Festival, which was really this, this pulling together of what was happening here in Seattle around climate. Um, and the city council had just uh, worked on Seattle's Green New Deal, which is slightly different than the national one with a similar name. Um, and the Jewish community here and, and our Jewish values. And I, we were studying the text of Noah and, and looking at that as a moment of climate reckoning uh, as well. Um, and I just had this, this insight of how to connect it to Tu B'Shvat, which is kind of the, the Jewish Earth Day, for lack of a better term, um, and got some people together thinking about what this could look like. Um, and we created a citywide festival, knowing that if we took everybody who cared about those things and really like handed them the mic and said, what would you do to pull all of these things together and design for multiple variables at the same time? we could do more and create more diversity across the community. And by doing it together, have a, a stronger communal voice, literally to support what the city council was proposing and to help get the business community on board as well. Um, so that was fun. We, uh, we did one keynote event uh, that, that I helped organize. And then the rest of it was really about inviting and supporting and lifting up other leaders in the community who wanted to participate in that. Um, and it was a real test of the model um, and, you know, was, was successful beyond what we imagined could be possible. Uh, and we're looking forward to doing it again. I mean, events seem like such a different era. Uh, how has your world changed in the last three months or so uh, with the rise of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the name of my business is Darim, which comes from the Hebrew word, uh, the root ladur, which means to dwell. And in biblical Hebrew, ladur is used in um, like when God was in the burning bush talking to Moses, God was dwelling in that space. So it's a sense of like like occupying or, or more like um, a presence, being a presence. Um, and in modern Hebrew, it 
you know, it's like the root for the word for apartment and things like that, like a more literal dwelling. And 20 years ago, when I picked that name, I had this sense of we were starting to dwell online, occupying these online spaces, which were not a substitute, uh, but a complement to our in-person spaces. And so for 20 years, I've been trying to help leaders understand the relationship and the opportunity in the online space to build relationships and educate and create community and all of those things. Uh, and it's only really in the last few months that a lot of people are like, oh, now I get why you named your business that word. It just has a whole different level of relevance, which um, is an interesting moment for me. Um I think that the big shift for me uh, is that there's a difference between taking what you've always done and pivoting it online, which is fine in a very short-term sense, but really uh, far from optimal when we're sitting in that space for more than a week at a time. Uh, versus looking at the state of the world and of the online opportunities and saying, how would we design for this from a blank slate? And in fact, what does this moment offer us in terms of unique and positive opportunities that actually might not be possible in other quote unquote normal times? So the first way I did that was in a, a collaboration with One Table, which is an organization that um, helps young people get together on Friday nights for Shabbat dinners in the Jewish community. Um, and they recently created a, a white label version of their platform, which is awesome. Like it's really about helping people get together and organize themselves. Um, and clearly that wasn't going to be happening in person. And so we asked the question like, oh, now that people aren't getting together in person, how are we going to continue to gather with people that we care about? What does that look like? And is it possible that this technology actually could support that too? Um, and because One Table works specifically in the Jewish community, and we saw that Passover, which is the most highly observed Jewish holiday across basically every demographic, uh, was coming down the pike. And by the way, we weren't going to be traveling to be with our parents or grandparents or gathering with 25 people at a huge table in somebody's living room. Like we usually do uh, what was needed. And so we used the technology to help people organize and put together all the pieces that they needed to have an amazing virtual Zoom Seder. And this is for people who are comfortable using technology uh, in a religious sense, uh, on holidays. And, um, it was incredible because for example, in my family, we were able to have Seder with my parents in Seattle and actually they were in California at the time and my in-laws who were in Boston and my brother and his wife who were in California and her parents who were at a different house in California and two of my parents' friends who didn't have another Seder to be part of, and their son, who lives somewhere else. So it was this gigantic, huge embrace where geography and mobility wasn't a factor at all. 
So we had a Seder that was actually richer and more diverse and more interesting than we ever would have had in normal times. Okay, it was through Zoom, and there was like a few other things that we had to take into account to do that well. Um, but it was great. It was one of the most meaningful seders I've ever done. And um, we had thousands and thousands of people around the country, many of whom, by the way, had said I had just given up and decided we weren't going to do seder this year. And then when we said, here's the way to organize it, here's a PDF of the booklet that you need to download and send to everybody so people are literally reading from the same page. And here's the checklist of things you should have in front of you and so should your guests for all the ritual pieces. And we just made it easy for them uh, and actually catalyzed a lot of really fascinating um, gatherings that, that might not have happened in a normal year. And in doing that, coming from an events background, uh, I've seen so many people send out so much advice that just seems wrong or off <laughs> or people... Yeah rushing just to fill the void like it, it definitely seemed that some companies were just uh renaming old files they had for virtual events um that were written last year that had nothing to do with what was going yeah. on what are what are some of the really strong takeaways and maybe a couple do's and a couple of don'ts that you took from this that could help people navigate um not just doing an event because you need to do it, but but engaging community through events that actually feel like there's a real connection? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say the main category I would point people to think about is like the human, emotional, psychological, cultural side of this. And if you imagine walking into a live event First of all, in a, in a Priya Parker sense, it starts with the invitation, and I'll get to that in a moment, um, and then it's all the subtle stuff, like what does it feel like to arrive? If you're driving, how do you park your car? Um, is it daylight or evening as you're walking up to the front door? Who answers the door? What does the kitchen smell like? Or if you're in an event space, where do you hang up your coat? Or who's welcoming you? Are you arriving with friends or are you arriving by yourself and meeting new people as you get into the room? Do people come over and give you a hug? Are you wearing jeans and a t-shirt or is this a more formal business event? Like all those little bits and pieces set the tone and culture and give us cues about how to be with one another. And when you show up on a Zoom meeting at the top of the hour and you have none of that context, we're, we're just conditioned to feel tentative and to hang back because there's lots of missing data points. So the best advice that I'll give people is double down on all that soft stuff. Cue it in your email invitations. Like, you know, I said, uh, I said in my Seder invite, I said, you should, you should look like this is a holiday from the waist up. Whatever is waist down is optional, right? So by doing that, I was like acknowledging the modality and setting a certain tone of like, this is a holiday. So I know we've all been in like sweats and t-shirts for a month, but like take it up a notch. Use this as an excuse. Um, but also it's casual and humor is very much invited, right? So I'm cueing things even in that email invitation. Um, and then in the 
actual live event, take some time to set the tone in the culture. And you have to do that more explicitly than you would in a live event because there's not the ways to like subtly integrate all of those inputs. So you got to be more explicit about it and make more time for it and structure it a little bit more. So whether that's a, a check-in or a, a particular question that people respond to, could be verbal, could be in the chat if it's a large group, um, just to kind of help people come together. Um, and then I spend a lot of time thinking about um, presence, eye contact, body language. I talk with my hands a lot on Zoom and I like slightly exaggerate all of my facial expressions because you have to communicate way more nuance in a smaller number of ways. Um, so it's just a different social norm. Um, it's not a one-to-one correlation with what you would do in person. And I find that people who really bring their full selves and know how to communicate their full selves in that different um, media um, are much more successful at having you know meaningful, rich, inspiring gatherings. We're going to take a quick musical break, play a song from our archives, and then we'll be back with Lisa Colton to talk about the Great Big Jewish Food Fest here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Hay muchos como yo, chicos, chicas, pobres, no escuchamos tu rock, masticamos odio, chicos sin diversión, ni trabajo fijo. ¿Quieres tu estéreo? ¿Quieres que lo cuide? Cuida coches, te lo cuido. Cuida coches, te lo cuido. ¡Wow! Chicos, chicas, pobres, no escuchamos tu rap Masticamos audio, chicos, sin diversión Mi trabajo fijo ¿Quieres un deseo? ¿Quieres que lo cuide? Cuida coche, hazte la cuido 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 I'm Brian Kenny, a board member at HRN and Director of Collections and Archives for Hearst Western Properties. Hearst Ranch Beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range, and always antibiotic-free. I recently recorded an episode of HRN on tour with the division manager for Hearst Ranch, Roland Camacho. We talked about what makes Hearst Ranch Beef unique. Right, so numbers, let's say 150,000 acres... 11, 1200 finished cattle a year. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of ground and not that many cattle. So maybe you could break that down for the listeners. We're using almost all of this ground and it's all being used because our, our, our herds are, are in groups, you know, a couple hundred to 300 head in size. And they're out just ranging and foraging, taking care of the resource. And then we have to find another spot for those, um, finished cattle, the ones we'll call fat cattle, so that they can grow to, to the finished phase. So 
we cannot put just massive amounts of animal units in small confined feeding operations and that's why we don't try to compete with those types of 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 finished beef it's just a completely different product it's just both beef but it's a completely different item that we're selling for 150 years, the Hearst family has raised cattle on 150,000 acres of rich, sustainable grasslands on California's central coast. Our beef will be available in Whole Foods Market's 44 California locations from San Luis Obispo to San Diego throughout the summer beginning June 1st. You can also order our 100% grass-fed beef online as part of a partnership with Larder Meat Company. Visit HearstRanch.com. That's H-E-A-R-S-T ranch.com. For those of us who were not paying attention, um, the Great Big Jewish Food Fest took place May 19th through 28th. And what I found so interesting about it is that it wasn't an event that was scheduled to happen before coronavirus. It was something that was planned during the uh, pandemic. And the fact that it was so close to the beginning of this, and I just want to give people context, who are tuning into this podcast that we're talking about three, three and a half months or so roughly today into the coronavirus. So, um, you know, a month ago you had this amazing event that was, that was killer. Can you explain to people, you know, what was the food fest and then what was the idea behind pulling it together? Sure. Um, so I'm in Seattle. Um, we were really the beginning of the epidemic in the U.S. And I have a lot of friends in the food business uh, here in Seattle, but all around the country. And it was really clear to me early March that this was going to be devastating um, for people who own food businesses because they weren't going to have their usual business models, obviously, Um, but also for people who love food and gathering and the ritual of it. Um, And so my brain, and as I talked about uh, earlier in the segment, that I I think a lot in Venn diagrams. And so I was thinking about, you know, one circle of people who own food businesses, and by the way, also their employees and their suppliers and that like whole domino tipping economically, uh, and people who love food and gather around food. and I was thinking about how all those pieces fit together and what could we do to support each other and design differently in this moment. Um, and so I just had this like vision of, of threading the needle in the very small overlap of multiple circles in that Venn diagram. Um, and I called my friend Jeffrey Yoskowitz, who, who runs a Jewish food business out of New York, and um, he was thinking about similar things and, in fact, had just had a conversation with a, a representative from a foundation that was also thinking about that specifically in the Jewish food world. And he put us together, and I pitched her this idea on the food festival. And literally in a few days, we had a grant and the green light to go, which is like unbelievably quick turnaround. Um, and so what I saw as the potential in that Venn diagram is that people running food businesses or who are chefs um, – had a different need for income, promoting their brand, how they keep a presence in the world. Um, Many of them weren't working the same hours. Cookbook authors weren't on book tour. Um, Caterers weren't uh, catering bar mitzvahs and weddings, 
right? Like there were awesome people with great talent who had time on their hands and were, and, or were looking to do what they do in a different way. Um, and then you had all these people at home cooking more than they ever had, unable to go out, also looking for entertainment and engagement and a sense of community. And I think that was a really important insight that this was not just a series of online cooking classes. This was a new way of coming together as a community. And the opportunity was not a pivot because we weren't trying to recreate something that existed in real life. It hadn't been an event in real life. Although many cities have Jewish food fests in the summer, we were not trying to replace those. Um, And we also saw um, just a really different opportunity to design, right? Like we could do a tour of Jewish delis with David Sachs, who wrote the book on Jewish delis, and hop around from city to city And that's an event you could never do in person. And by the way, even if you flew in all those people to New York to like sit on a panel, it would be way less fun than actually like going and seeing them in the kitchen of their deli in Houston or California or Boston or wherever else. Um, So we took the opportunity to put people in conversation and to do things that actually never would have happened in real life. And then in addition to that, we had this benefit of intimacy that instead of being in a conference center and having people, you know, standing at a podium with a slide deck or being on a panel, we're seeing some of our heroes in their own kitchens and in their own living rooms. There was just a sense of intimacy Um, as one person wrote in, she said, this is so amazing. I feel like I have a front row seat in every single session. And that invited a different sense of culture and community, um, than really we could have done at any other time. Um, so it was, it was really fun and I think profound for a lot of people to realize they could feel part of something big, that was like a big, warm hug across time and space. And we could do it during a pandemic through people's laptops and phones. And I think the the point that I don't, and you said it so well, but I want to make sure that it's really understood is that you didn't try to make something that was originally going to be in real life and then try to bring it online, which is what I found so dismal about the (laughs) current the last few months where you're just missing you know now i'm just looking at it through my computer uh or phone which is great if it's a music performance and i feel like i'm with that but for so many other things it just it it falls so flat and the fact that you took the challenges and you took advantage of what was going on and the ability to gain that level of intimacy and made something new and i think that's where the hard work really lies in the future of events. Of course, we'll go back to some IRL stuff, but it's never going to be more than 30 or 50 people in the next year or so. Um, but they can be complemented by something like this, where you can get 20,000 20, people together. Um, yeah. I know that you're saying this now after um, a very successful event and in hindsight, but um, I, I would love to know, you know what doubts and what fears you had going into this and, and apprehension before this became a success? 
That's a great question. Um, first of all, we never imagined it would be that big and resonant. I think our original concept was um, much more modest, only because there were so many unknowns. Right? We had we had no sense of um, what people were going to be up for. Um, whether they would come to multiple things. So we had a goal of of trying to make sure every person came to two or three events. And in fact, we met or exceeded that, which is great. Um, because we wanted them to feel part of something, not just have this like one-off transactional experience. Um, <clears throat> and we, um, we really approached it with this kind of like ethos, I call it the DNA, right? It was, it was that the, the festival had a certain DNA, philosophy, culture, goals, personality, brand, all of that. Um, and I think we, we cared more about being really true to that than about any of the statistics. Um, obviously we were putting in a ton of work. And so the more work you put in, the more, you know, dividends you want it to pay, um, but we really wanted to create an opportunity and model for others what it would look like to be done really well. And so if, you know, a thousand people had showed up with a lot of enthusiasm, you know, that would have been fine. I might've said like, wow, that was a lot of work for a thousand people, but, um, we were really trying to, to share something of like, if you design with a blank slate with these principles in mind, this is what it could look like. Uh, and I think we did that really well. And it, it, um, there were lots of decision points where we came back and kind of referenced that, that DNA and those values. Um, and it had to do a lot with the people that we recruited to be part of the team and everybody contributed to that DNA. And then also, expressed it, whether they were, you know, coordinating and producing community events or happy hours or running our Instagram lives, or, you know, even the, the tech people who were like prepping all of our guests and making sure their internet connections were good and that their microphones worked and that their lighting was nice. Even the way that they engaged with our talent was an expression of that DNA. Um, and so it was just a really new way of going about producing an event and building community. And I think it resonated. People felt it and it changed how they showed up and how they participated in the events too. One of the other things that I really loved as someone who enjoys going deep into very niche topics is that you had some pretty niche classes in there. Um, I think mm -hmm. one of them was the Soviet uh, Jewish cuisine, which if you were doing an IRL festival, you probably wouldn't have room for that. You know, you have limited time, you know, maybe only 20 people would show up for it. You could get everything. So can you speak a little bit to that avenue? And, and again, as just like a shining example of freedom that you would have um, to do this and, and any uh, risks, if there are any, would doing more focused, dedicated programming like that when doing things online? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that those were some of our most profound events, honestly. Um, because when you're designing for 
an individual or a group of people to have a meaningful experience, to learn something about themselves or to connect with others or to have space to to breathe life into or talk about something that is so personally meaningful to them, but is so niche that they sometimes don't have anyone to share that with. Um, it creates just this magic, really. Um, and, and the reason that I loved this session was that on the surface, it was talking about Soviet cuisine and, and a few people who you know run food businesses that feature those kinds of recipes. But what it did was just attract the right people to be, quote unquote, in the room together at the same time. And what we found was there were people who were immigrants to the out of the Soviet Union or one or two generations away from those people for whom so much of their Jewish experience was wrapped up in food because in the Soviet Union at that time, you couldn't really express your Judaism in any other way. So multiple generations had passed down this sense of identity and ritual and meaning through food that also like had all this other, you know, Soviet Eastern European flavor to it. Um, And I cannot tell you how many emails and text messages I got from people saying, I'm sitting here with tears running down my face. My mother and my grandmother are, you know, watching from their other locations. We can't believe there are other people who are having this experience too. I mean, it was really, really meaningful and profound. Um, So those intimate gatherings, that session, but also we had a a number of happy hours that were pretty niche, um, were some of, I think, the most special gatherings of the festival. Um, even though they were small numbers, there was a, a lot of value in them. Final question. Um, as we turn the corner, I think, if not from a health standpoint, as we're still very much in phase, phase one with cases on the rise, but I think mentally people are ready to just get back to some sense of rhythm and normalcy. Where do you see the future balance um, and how would you guide your own events or your clients as they navigate the, the next year to two years before a vaccine is widespread? Oh, this, this is the like, this is the challenge, isn't it? Um, I wish I had simple answers to this. I, I actually think the moment in time we designed for the food fest was way easier Um, And we did it in eight weeks, which was just bananas, because we knew that starting on June 1st, it was possible that that various states would be opening up to certain degrees and that we would potentially lose people's attention. Um, And I'm really glad that we sprinted that hard because I I think we got the participation and the focus um, because people really didn't have other options. Um, and by the way, weather also matters, right? When it's beautiful outside and you can go hang out in a park, even if it's just your family, you're not in front of your screen anymore. Um, so I think it's harder in the summer and in the gray areas, um, where you can get together with small groups of people. Um, so I would say whatever area that you work in, 
um, or you're designing for to think really hard about what's not possible right now that people are really craving. Um, I think feeling part of something bigger than yourself, feeling that you have agency and influence and power is also really important. And those things can't really be replicated um, in small group settings. In fact, many of the political protests that I think we've been seeing over the past several weeks are an example of that, not to take away at all from the substance of those, but the the massive participation in them um, and the connection between even lots of small events feeling like you're part of something bigger, I think is a great example of what people are craving. So if you can create opportunities where people feel like they can participate alone or with their family or in small groups, but in doing so feel part of something bigger and larger, that's where the magic happens. So like, you know, the bakers against racism phenomenon where all these bakers are are selling things or auctioning them off and giving all of that away to philanthropic causes is a great example of how the baking community has come together, not physically together, but like holding hands across time and space to have a collective impact. So designing for that, I think, is um, what will hit people, you know, deep in their hearts and souls that will motivate their participation in time and space and give them patience to be doing it virtually. Amazing. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, where can people find you, follow you, reach out to you, get advice from you, learn more about your upcoming events? Sure. Um, DareemConsulting.com is a good uh, place to find me. Um, and on all the social channels, um, I'm. Uh, you can find me at Lisa Colton. Um, Instagram is Lisa.Colton. Um, and, um, you can also find me through the great big Jewish food fest. Uh, so that's jewishfoodfest.org. Um, if you're looking for the website and great big Jewish food fest and social channels, all those are linked on the website as well. Um, and always happy to talk about this stuff. My favorite people are the folks who like really get it and are trying to find new ways to bring this to life. Um, And I would say one of the great outcomes of the Great Big Jewish Food Fest has been that those people have been coming out of the woodwork to have these kinds of conversations. um, And I love it. So thanks so much for having me. Amazing. We're going to play another song from the archives, and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
Nyman Ranch is presenting a virtual event series honoring their community of independent family farmers as their annual Hog Farmer Appreciation Dinner couldn't take place this year in person. The kickoff event is August 5th, 12 noon Eastern. HRN's Executive Director Katie Mosman-Wadler will moderate a panel on the future of restaurants featuring Jeff Amoscato of Shake Shack, Chef Stephen Jones of The Larder and the Delta, Chef Mary Sue Milken of Scolado Bordigo Restaurants and Catering and Barbecue Mexicana, and Bruce Reinstein of Kinetic 12. The series will continue with educational events through September 11th. To get more details and reserve your free spot, head to www.neemanranchfad.com. Neiman Ranch FAD stands for Hog Farmer Appreciation Dinner. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. This is Jeet, and I'm here with a former student of mine, Kyle. How you doing, buddy? Hey, how's it going, man? Nice to see you. When when did we meet? We must have met like about a year ago now, right? Yeah, I think it was. Probably last fall. Yep, yep. I uh, I guess I guess we were doing um, Pro Tools or something. Was that? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> Audio recording. That's the one. And I came to find out that you're in this pretty cool, jammy, blues, grassy band. And I was like, you know what? Let me reach out to him and see if he's down to do some snacky tunes. So let's uh, let's start with like, like, what's your background, man? How'd you get into music? How'd you end up at Rowan? Yeah, so I started uh, actually, it's funny because it's probably a pretty usual story, but I started playing music when i was in high school you know i was listening to all the uh mm-hmm. the old classic rock bands like led zeppelin uh pink floyd is probably my favorite um nice. jimmy hendrix you know big influences in the beginning and it really just got me and uh my, actually the bassist in my band dan cassio it got me and him started on the acoustic guitar and uh the first song we really started was uh, over the hills and far away by led zeppelin and it really nice. just put us on a warpath, man. We just started learning everything. And uh, eventually, yeah, Dan picked up the bass, too. That was probably junior year of high school, man. So probably almost six years ago. Wow. So you guys have known each other for a while then. Yeah, man. That was like 2015. We probably have known each other since like 2012. Wow. That's really cool. And you started performing it live or? Yeah, we honestly, we started performing right right around when college started honestly that's when really because there was just so many opportunities to uh perform it whether it be parties you know or just like hanging out with friends jamming but we had been jamming together since the beginning you know obviously learning everything that we had learned we were just ready to play with each other (laughs) right from the start nice and so when did all the other members come into the band so yeah really the only other member is our drummer mike and uh he came into the equation very early on as well we actually i played hockey in high school and mike was Mm -hmm. on the hockey team with me he's a grade younger than me and dan and uh we've always been friends so it just worked out the way that it did mike played drums and he just came along (laughs) that's awesome and you guys have like similar influences all three of you oh yeah definitely man we're all really into right now uh, especially me and Mike, we're into the soul type of stuff. Dan is down the shore for the summer, so he always gets into reggae influences in the summer, you know, like acoustic-y stuff. And, but uh, me, and, nice. me and Mike really love our soul music, man. It, it's absolutely <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Really getting into Marvin Gaye, you know, really just getting deep into those catalogs and just finding what, what we you, can and trying to utilize it. Nice. What do you think about uh, that kind of soul music? What do you think – what is it about those songs that really – captures captures your attention 
Oh man, it's all about the feel, honestly. Uh, like mm. you can you can rip a guitar solo at any speed or any type of solo, you know, that that being said, but it's all about how you make a person feel and it's how you make the listener feel upon you know, upon review. And uh, uh that's what I think it's all about. Like a, someone who really hits the mark on that is Quincy Jones that I could think of. I've been listening to a nice. lot of him too, man. Like just like songs like 100 Ways by him, like the synth mm-hmm. solo at the end of that, man. Oof. Just invokes feeling. <laughs> it evokes feeling. You know, you just want to listen. Or like I just the it. two of us, Grover Washington, yeah. Bill Withers, man, that sax solo at the end. Shoot. Can't <laughs> beat it, man. Can't beat it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. We got question mark band here on Snacky Tunes. What's the first song you're going to play for us, man? Uh, Feel So Lonely. It is a song we actually recorded at the Rowan studio back uh, last fall. Nice. All right. Here we go on Snacky Tunes. writing process you guys have like very similar influences so how does the writing process start for your band so for us where it really begins um i've been studying like theory harmony and uh, just a ton of writing and scoring over the past Mm -hmm. year especially with my um major jazz performance so it really comes back to that so i basically write most of the harmonies and lyrics and then it just comes down to um the other members putting in their piece you know uh i really present to them a really probably raw version of the track you know uh Mm -hmm. whether it be on an acoustic guitar if i have my electric and then it really just comes down to us jamming something out and hashing something together that we really all love 
Yeah. Nice. Where Where do you think uh, your lyrical inspiration comes from? Oh, sheesh, man. Uh, definitely, <laughs> I'd say definitely the music that I listen to, the music that I have listened to. Um, a lot of it comes from, you know, influences in classic rock. It comes from definitely uh, just poetry. I've been like reading mm, a lot of Robert Frost too. Yeah, like that's wow. that's what I'm big into this summer. It's funny because the summer is extremely hot and I landscape almost every day. But uh, <laughs> I've been reading Robert Frost at night and he's talking about the cold Northeast. And I'm just like, yes, I love it. Wow, that's fascinating poetry. Yeah, man. Um, and what about like from a, from an emotional perspective? Like, what do you like to talk about in your songs? So I really uh, dove into researching Jim Morrison. Like what I was saying with that poetry thing, someone who I've definitely been reading into was him, just because he has such like he has uh, poetry books that you can buy and read, and I've just been doing that and getting a lot of influence from him. And he likes to write about nature so i've really been taking that into account i've been taking obviously all my songs probably have a backbone bluesy feel so it mm. comes down to writing about the women too you know nice so it really just it, but i would say it really is mostly based on nature and just trying to create harmony nice i like it so with covid going on everybody's basically been in quarantine mode for the last couple of months now what's that been like for a jam band you know oh man we've been struggling i'll tell you that but <laughs> you know it's it's different because there's so many situations that are going on that we don't even feel like we have to be putting out content right now because mm -hmm. there's other things that people need to listen to in the world there's other things nice. that people need to hear and as as a jam band there's a time and a place as, as with anything, you know, we don't need to be posting on Instagram every week about how we're getting together and jamming, you know, mm -hmm. whether we are mm -hmm. or not. You know what I mean? There's other things mm -hmm. in the world that people need to be listening to. There's crises going on in Yemen. There's social injustice. You know, there's systemic racism in our society mm -hmm. and it all needs to be addressed. And and that's why we've been relatively silent over social media, too, because it's just not our place to even speak, you know. Makes sense. So we just makes sense. Yeah. But besides yeah, that, you know, no. we've been doing our thing. You know, we just been getting together, jamming. You know, uh, we wrote an album, so we're just trying to record that by the end of the summer Excellent. and get that out for the people and uh, everyone who's been sticking with us. We really, really appreciate because we know we've been relatively silent, but um, we got a lot of big things coming, and we're really excited for the future. Man, I love it. That dude. That was a great answer, just so you know. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you. <laughs> here we are again. Um, that's great. What's the next song you're going to play for us? Yeah, I was thinking about playing one called um, Take Me Away. It's actually uh, also going to be the single that we released prior to the album. And uh, it's going to be accompanied with the uh, acoustic unplugged that many of you may have heard already. Uh, it's on our YouTube as well. If you check that out, it's question mark band. And uh, yeah, it's a great tune. We love it. <laughs> love it. Take me away on Snacky Tunes. One, two, three, four.
So what, uh, what's the live scene looking like now? You know, COVID's going on, quarantine, everything's kind of slowly opening back up. What's, what's it been like? Yeah, man, it's good. Uh, something that my band has been trying to do in the past that we're hoping to do again in the future, we've been like hosting shows too, trying to become a more DIY type of scene down in Glassboro. And it went Love well. It. We threw our first one back in December and the reception was great. We had three acts come out, a uh, well-known band, that I'm also a part of, uh, Damien C. It was a great mm-hmm. act. He came, tore the house down. Everyone loved it. He's out in Cali right now. Shout out to Dame. Can't wait to see him <laughs> again, man. <laughs> nice. When was that? That was December? Yeah, man. We got, uh, also the other uh, artist, before I forget, Fonz the Don, man. He uh, he came out and rocked the house too. He's a rap artist, man. He's great. Nice. Got to shout so him a very out. Diverse, a very diverse kind of um, lineup there. Oh, we'd love to bring everyone in. That's the thing. Like we're, we, we, we play our music, but you know, if you hear Dame's recordings, he's more surf rocky. Uh, I play live shows with him at Stone Pony all the time, and uh, oh, dude, nice. Yeah, man, and it's so fun. Like his his songs are just great, man. They're catchy, and Fonz's songs they're on a whole nother level. That that kid raps words around my head, and I'm just it's <laughs> it's insane. You got to hear him, man. I'll send you some of his tracks. Dude, totally big shout out to those two. Yeah, man, they're great. Oh, it's so funny because like Stone, the Stone Pony is like the perfect place for surf rock. Oh, I know. It's so funny, man. The crowds always love it, too. Dame has such a John Mayer-esque vibe, too. It's so great. Nice. But the live scene down in here in South Jersey, it's mostly consists of like breweries, you know, bars mm. that want us or uh, house shows even. Some, some of them are like because I'm down here in South Jersey. So we have a lot of socially distanced house shows out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And like people will hire a rock band to come jam out for a couple hours. Nice. So like it's still been day. going on. So oh, it's yeah. still been like, you still been it's able just, to play. It's just starting back up. That's the thing. Like this month has really been nice. the beginning of it. Yeah. Cause this month has really just been the beginning of everything. Like a lot of outdoor shows and stuff or oh, outdoor yeah. seatings. Yeah, definitely outdoor seatings. Yeah. Next month, it'll probably be even better, too, because uh, with the graduation and everything, I'm sure there'll be a ton more people down in Glassboro. Nice. And uh, what's next for you guys? You said you're going to work on an album over summer? Yeah, man. If we, uh, you know, the thing is, I also just picked up, uh, I broke the bank a little bit and spent a quick grand (laughs) on the Apollo Twin X yesterday. So I've been, uh, yeah, I was working on getting that integrated into my lineup and, uh, if if not if nothing else, just uh, keep recording a little bit higher quality demos on this now, 
and then uh you know just keep shopping them around hoping to find um some studio time soon and then get that booked away and then yeah get this thing out there to the people (laughs) i love it yeah dude uh there's some pretty cool amp sims on the on the UAD. So sometimes oh, dude, I've been yeah. the Marshall Flexi was my favorite already yesterday, <laughs> man. I was That's trying so the Fender Tweed one too. Came with some that great I, ones right off the bat. Oh, that's so funny you said the Marshall because my buddy who I had mentioned this to said the mm-hmm. exact same thing. He loved the Marshall on that. Dude, it's it's just a killer amp and they just give it to you. I was like, okay, now I feel better about spending the thousand on it. <laughs> Plugins alone. Some great, oh, colors, some great limiters too. I think, I think they mm-hmm. came with a limiter, yeah. And you know, good EQs too. I, I was looking forward to that because I only had, I had been using just the the one that came with the uh, Scarlet interface mm-hmm. that I had bought a couple of years ago, and I was like, this is good, but it's definitely better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the UAD is just a beast, man. They're yeah, awesome. man. I, as soon as I plugged it in yesterday, I could tell because I was just like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's so right, cool well, too because I have a home studio and I could just uh, plug right in and then talk input into my uh, mic instead of screaming at the person from two rooms over now. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the best, man. <laughs> that is awesome, dude. You're getting it going. I love it. Yeah, man. Where, where can uh, again. Of course. Where, where can people find you? Uh, so right now I'm under Kyle Horner on Spotify, YouTube, and basically everywhere else. But uh, if you want to find three question marks band, we're at three underscore question underscore marks underscore band on Instagram. And we are at three question marks band basically everywhere else. And we will be putting out our debut album on streaming services and everywhere else uh, coming soon in the fall. Awesome. Awesome. Three question mark band. I love it. What are you taking us out with? Can you say that again? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Oh, which, which song are you going to take us out with? Let's do Need Your Lovin'. Love it. All right. Thanks for joining us on Snackatoons, man. See ya. Why do I still hang around, babe?
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.